Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. Our first interview is with one of Australia's leading investigative reporters. Hedley Thomas is the co-creator and presenter of the phenomenally successful podcast, The Teacher's Pet, which at last count has been downloaded more than 50 million times around the world. But what you may not know is that this award-winning podcast was Hedley's first foray into that new technology. Hedley has indeed been in the pursuit of truth for many years, not least of which winning Australia most prestigious journalism honour, the Gold Walkley Award, not once but twice, and all without having a social media presence. Thank you so much, Headley, for joining us on Streets of Your Town. Thank you, Nancy. It's, it's great to be here with you. <laughs> so, Headley, uh, can we start with really the podcast itself? You were always a, a renowned investigative reporter in newspapers and online with The Australian. What made you decide to go into the podcast realm? Well, I knew it would be a challenge because I hadn't done it before. And my grasp of technology is pretty tenuous. Anyone who knows me well can relate stories about my hopelessness with with the vagaries of, of technology in the system. So I thought that combining long form journalism with a podcast and this incredible story about Lynn Dawson and her disappearance in 1982 and suspected murder with the you know the the the, the kind of you know deep diving um, that I wanted to do on the investigative side I felt that it could you know tick a lot of boxes possibly even give me some credibility on the technology side for a change and I was also intrigued about this this new medium you know I have friends who have been talking about you know, doing um, and listening to podcasts for for a while and being completely obsessed by them my wife was addicted to true crime podcasting you know my friend Rob had been urging me to do one for ages uh, and it sort of came at a stage in my own life where I needed to take, you know, a big step into the unknown. Mm, I think it does have that interesting intersection with your personal life at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. Mm. It, it came, you know, at a difficult time in, in my life because uh, I was probably at a bit of a crossroads professionally and personally. My father had um, passed away some months earlier and I'd taken... Uh, long service leave or what wasn't um, official long service leave but it was long leave and when I came back it was um, I guess a little hard for me to sort of be motivated again because my father had been such a powerful influence on on me uh, professionally and personally and and a positive um, influence and when he was no longer around I just um, think that you know I hit a bit of a flat spot and uh, and then the idea for the podcast grew in my mind and then I thought well which story and you know this was a story that I had previously reported on in some detail and it was a story that I thought was 
really compelling, really important and needed to be thoroughly aired and um, everything just began to line up. So it was almost like you took on a new challenge after after your father's passing and you felt that that would be something he'd he'd want you to do? Yeah, maybe he, he would have, yeah. I, mm. I think that Dad quite enjoyed seeing my byline in the paper because my byline's the same as, as his name. He's also Headley Thomas. Mm. And I was only um, yesterday looking at some, some um, old emails from him <laughs> where I'd had... I think five bylines in the paper that day and, and, he, and he'd sent me a note saying, I think I'm famous. I've <laughs> done all this great work in the paper. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just an aside. He, uh, he would have been you know, very happy that I was pursuing um, a challenging story and I think he probably would have told me that I needed to speed up my, my, my Queensland drawl <laughs> or my, I needed to sort of uh, pronounce my words a little more mm. succinctly, but uh, <laughs> they would have all been very constructive criticism. Oh, I think it's interesting, though, always interesting to see what can come from difficult points in people's lives to realise that such, you know, amazing things can happen if we take the time to really, you know, think through what we do next yeah yeah um i mean did you ever imagine from that that you'd have a podcast that's been downloaded not just in australia but all around the world oh no never like uh, i knew that the story was really important and that Mm. there was a reason that you know 17 years after i had first reported on it I wanted to go back to it. Mm. You know, that doesn't happen with many stories that, that we do in journalism. And so it was bubbling in your mind all that time yeah. at the back? That's right. And so it must have been because I knew instinctively that there was something mm. or many things about this story that that were extraordinary, unusual and, you know, crying out for further investigation. But... Uh, I didn't know that my fascination with the story would become the fascination of, you know, many other listeners and am still stunned at, at how it has been received, as you said, um, around the world. So what do you put that down to? Is it the compelling nature of the story and did it just marry really well in an audio format to be able to, to connect with people's voices like I know for myself I remember hearing Lynn Dawson's daughter at one point and that was just incredibly powerful for me yeah look I think it's an incredibly sad story the voices in the podcast of friends of Lynn Dawson um, Lynn Dawson's daughter Lynn Dawson's brother and sister and sister-in-law you know many people including the voice of Lynn Dawson herself Mm. because of a a really fortunate um, discovery of an old documentary that was fantastic Mm. and I think those voices combined with the elements of the Mm. teacher's pet and the allegations of sexual abuse of, 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 uh, of students and the allegations of domestic violence at a time in Australia, you know, the early 80s, mm. when I think we all lived differently. And it was a bit more accepted, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm. Um, as well as, you know, there was the fact that there was this footballing culture and mm. some celebrity around that and 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 all, all sort of revolving around this 
quite spectacular, you know, this beautiful part of Australia, the northern beaches of Sydney. You know, I don't think there's any one thing that, that sort of made it so relatable for people. I think it was just this combination of unusual elements and they don't, it doesn't happen very often like that. I also think that the um, the unusual feature of this podcast series compared with many others is that it was an evolving week by week story it wasn't pre-written and produced and finessed and and you know kept back until you know everyone was happy and then you press start and people could then start listing and you know the the, the people behind it could go and take a break and go away on holiday. It wasn't <laughs> like that. It was a, a, a podcast series that when it started, I didn't know how many episodes there would be. I estimated eight, nine. Oh, really? Yeah. So you hadn't even planned no, that out? No, mm. I thought there would be eight or nine, but um, mm. I had only produced effectively two and a half or three wow. when I started it. And so then, because it was releasing week by week, mm. I, I felt that because I'd you know, I had this head start of a couple or, or a few, uh, I would then be able to just write each week, each episode and produce it and present it and so on. And, and, and I'd have, I'd be running ahead of the, the, you know, of where it was going. But of course, information began to pour in as, as it was going and it led me to have to change course and, and rewrite um, episodes I'd already drafted and mm. and and restructure things and then as more stuff came in and the series grew and it ended up um, being uh, well 14 episodes and then we took a break partly through just exhaustion and then came back and did another two episodes. Because what sort of hours were you working, Hedley? I think this is interesting for, for people to know because you were also writing the stories for The Australian to go with each release, weren't you? Yeah, the hours were um, incredibly long. You know, it was the, the, the most gruelling work period, you know, in my career. And uh, it involved getting up when it was dark and and, and going to, to bed sometimes in the wee hours, you know, and just grabbing a few hours sleep. And, and sometimes I'd wake up and have an idea um, that I was worried I would forget, you know, because of exhaustion. So I'd quickly, you know, write something on my hand, you know. It was an idea for an interview or a sequence or something. You know, I was really fortunate that with the the writing of the newspaper articles, David Murray, my really good friend and colleague, he did the vast majority of those and uh, he was the bylined author with me on those and he would take he would craft those stories from the the, the script that I'd produced for that for that coming episode. So that was good to yeah. have that teamwork. Yeah. yeah. So he would read the script and say, Oh okay, well I think there's a good angle here. 
there's another news story over there, mm. there's a story here, and he would pace it over several days either side of that episode. And was that a fascinating process too, to see the difference between writing for the audio medium and for a, a written or read medium? Yeah, I mean, I was mm. also just so impressed with Dave's <laughs> ability to sort of pick out the news mm. angles uh, because, you know, I guess I was really close to the story and I was writing these lengthy scripts for each episode. As a story to a storytelling yeah, medium, really. that's yeah. right. And, and, and my... And my Writing for podcast was kind of like a bit of a slow burn uh, most of the time in terms of, you know, the particular uh, person I was interviewing or the, the description mm. of their description of events or something. Whereas David was writing for the news pages of The Australian and he was taking the same material and saying, oh, there's <coughs> a snappy news angle there. And, and making, condensing it. Yeah, and making mm. it a news story, getting a picture organised and so on. And, of course, where we're sitting now, you were saying, uh, was somewhere that you were doing a lot of your scripts <laughs> yeah. here at Brookfield. Yeah, so we are on the deck <laughs> of the uh, the Brookfield District Museum building, and uh, it's a beautiful place. And I sat here quite a lot to, you know, write and talk to people. Um, and nearby at the general store, um, you know, my friend Christian, who owns it, um, he would say, mate, what are you working on? Oh, you know, you're working so hard. And I said, oh, I'm doing this, you know, doing this thing, this podcast. Oh, yeah, really? What's that all about? And, uh, and he would... He would <laughs> Little um, did he know. He would bring me coffees and uh, we'd have a good chat. But I, I found that I needed to um, move around a bit as I was writing and working because I didn't, I didn't have really any... There might have been one or a couple of days off for months, and and so I, f I just found that for my own balance, I needed to work in different locations mm. as I was produce well writing and 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 preparing mm. for you know, narration and so on, and 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 so sometimes I'd be here, sometimes I'd go to a coffee shop elsewhere. I could be at home. I could be in the garden. Where would you do your narration, Headley? Yeah, well, that was done in um, a phone booth-sized padded Cell? What you call no. it? closet. <laughs> it's like a closet, um, but, but really well you know, well set up. Um, it's a part of a recording studio. With um, your colleague, Slade. With my, with my, my really good friend yeah. and colleague, Slade Gibson, mm. uh, brilliant sound engineer incredible musician that was an interesting marriage of skills as well yeah well i should also say because he loves it when i say this um he's a former guitarist for savage garden yeah. <laughs> fantastic yeah um, and, and um, now podcast yeah. phenomenal podcast producer <laughs> yeah but he was he's great and he's got a terrific mind <laughs> and uh excellent judgment and mm. and he composed the music and, and oh, course, yeah. managed the pace of everything and he worked under such incredible pressure mm. and he hadn't done a podcast before either so mm. I just think the guy is an absolute genius <laughs> and we <laughs> and work I, so well together. I wonder if it really does show like you were saying I know for myself I always think that I'm fairly inept with technology as well but Journos need to get good technological support behind them, really, yeah. and then this all comes together beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> you need a good team. I'm interested in the process too, Headley, uh, behind the story. Mm. This is, of course, just one of your gold walker winning mm. stories. What is it that goes off in you? Do, you? do you know it at the time? Is it an intuitive thing when you know that you're onto a big story? Yeah, I think 
I think you do just know. And as you burrow deeper into it and become, you know, more engaged and and find out more your knowledge that this is special just becomes reinforced and uh, that's what happened with me in this story you know because you know I've, I I discovered as I went through it so much more that I had no or little idea about mm-hmm. you know I had the, some gut feelings about some parts of the story but I didn't believe I would get documentary material or witnesses to back that up and so that was um, very uh, a really positive part of it but you know at the outset I I knew that this story Lynn's story her disappearance unsolved was um, incredibly uh, important it was intriguing and, and was it similar for you, even with cases like Dr. Patel? I put yeah, Bundaberg gosh. and that scandal. Now you're taking me back 2005. So okay. do you remember that gut feeling even then? Yeah, well, I do. And, and uh, so that was 14 years ago, and that mm. was a very important story too. And, mm. and again, I probably thought then that there wouldn't be um, a story bigger than that in for me in your career yeah for me yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. hundreds and hundreds of stories are bigger than that but yeah. for me and i knew at the time that that was going to become a major scandal and it did and it's still got ramifications really that, that's right mm. that's right so yeah you do get that that sense with um a number of stories and i've been very fortunate to have my fair share of those perhaps more than my fair share I don't know if it's fortunate, Headley. What do you think? I think you've 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 honed that over time. That sense of um, what, what motivates you is it a sense of injustice or a sense of just something's not right? What what, might, what yeah, prickles both. you your interest? Yeah, both um, those those feelings mm. come into play, and I had that sense with with Dr. Patel, and I had that sense with Dr. Hanif, another story that came a couple of years after Patel and of course with this latest one and and that does give you momentum gives you personal sort of momentum particularly when you're doing it pretty tough um, with fatigue and you know it takes a toll too like mm. you know you, you sort of when you become completely immersed in a story like this you you do stop properly listening to your own family for example and friends you know you because you're thinking about the next interview or all the, time. the last one yeah. you know you're, you're actually your mind is elsewhere you're completely distracted and what's the new yeah. angle yeah. where do I take this forward yeah and and so you could be you know my daughter would say dad dad <laughs> dad come on dad what you know, I've asked you three times. I'm like, oh, sorry. And you're almost in like a bit of a kind of daze while, she, while your beautiful daughter is asking you something or explaining something and you kind of just nodded but not really <laughs> responded to what she was saying. And that happens. Well, and you touched on it then too, Hedley, and I think it's important to point out there is sometimes a really high price to pay, isn't yeah. there, for these big stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you've experienced that. Yeah. Look, the... Um, yeah, the, 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 there's the sort of 
almost inevitable tension in 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 your in your own family and in in you know relationships that that um, increases when you become so deeply involved in a story like this and uh, you know I'm just incredibly lucky that that you know, my wife Ruth and we've been together you know since we met at the opening of Rick's Cafe in Fortitude Valley oh that's beautiful <laughs> yeah late December 1992 <laughs> so <laughs> coming up to 27 years oh, she, she's um, you know, a brilliant journalist, um, and understands the the craft and and the sacrifices that get made. But um, you know, she would be the first to say that we've we've certainly become stronger in our in our marriage through having incredible pressures placed on us by you know the reporting. Yeah, because your family's actually been a target at times, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. And uh, you know, just down the road from here, in in um, no, uh, 2002, you know, my my our our home was was um, mm. shot at, and um, Ruth and I uh, and our very young children then we're going back 17 years mm. were um, you know deeply uh, distressed by the whole mm. thing because. Um, we didn't know who had done it, and and there were four bullets fired into the house, or at the house. Incredible. And um, one of those bullets only narrowly missed um, Ruth and I in bed. It just went through the window above mm. our, our above our heads on the pillow about 10:30 at night, and uh, you know it was. Um, it was a really difficult time because you don't know mm-hmm. um, who's done it, you don't know what story mm-hmm. caused it, and we still don't to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's never been solved. No. I think it does, it's just important, I think, at the moment with reflecting on what's even happening in Australian journalism with the recent raids that have happened, to, to sometimes reflect on that journalists are not really doing this for fun. <laughs> um, you know, that there is, there, there's quite a high price at times that um, it's not for the fame and glory. You know, no. is, is, is this uh, podcasting glamorous for you, Headley? I suppose people might be interested to, to hear uh, from you. Uh, look, I... I um I do it because I really enjoy it. I like being, you know, intellectually challenged by difficult stories and I like the autonomy that I I have with journalism Mm. and I don't think I'm qualified to do anything else. (laughs) So, So, you know, all of those things together make it a good a good fit for me. I think um, yeah. <laughs> I found it interesting reading one of your bios. I think online, but you you described yourself as a hack still, and I thought, oh, we should talk about that. What is it about being a hack as a journo that differentiates us from uh, other people? Do you think? Well, I think I think that, um, <laughs> because I've only ever worked in newspapers, uh, you know, TV and and the bright lights of of you know TV studios and even radio have kind of like been for other journos. I've done a bit of radio but um, I've only ever been employed in media by newspapers. We we do sort of see ourselves kind of like, you know, um, in a sort of self-deprecating way as <laughs> as uh, newspaper hacks, but um, it's look it's been a very fortunate, you know, career thus far and uh, I uh, I have have you know enjoyed almost all of it 
and I feel that the podcast and and the medium of podcasting you know has given me a bit of a new sort of release on journalism you know to to do more of this kind of reporting in a way that people find important um, hopefully um, compelling and which can make more of a difference than if I had reported only for the newspaper, for example. I suppose there's a lesson in that to embrace new technologies if you find that it yeah. marries with your story in that yeah, sense. That's yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right. And, you know, a dinosaur like like <laughs> me, you know, um, embracing technology, it's a bit of an oxymoron, really. But um, Has the process of investigative journalism changed much for you, reflecting back over sort of a couple of decades, or is it still really down to that gut feeling? I don't know. Yeah, look, I think it's... Um, for me, a lot of it's gut feeling, mm. you know, in terms of the identification of a of a, an angle or a story that is going to be one I want to pursue. If I have an edge over some of my colleagues, mm. and I'm not saying that I do because, you know, I don't want to blow my trumpet, but some of them who've known me a long time have said that, they think I can perceive and read and see things and see the the underlying angle that others aren't seeing. You know, mm. see the the potential for what might look like a plain vanilla kind of story to actually be no, there's something really rotten about this, mm. and that 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 is the possible edge I have. But uh, so, I don't what, know. what tips would you give to budding journalists to to hone that, to give them that edge, to to find these stories? Because I know that that's what I get asked a lot. How do we find these stories? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound a bit silly, but I reckon if more budding journalists spent less time on social media tweeting and retweeting and 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 honing their own you know image image and yeah. profiles but if they spent less time in fact if they just abandoned it truly yeah just get off it so you're not getting stories from social media headline no. Well, I'm not on it. <laughs> it's true. I, don't I, I tried Twitter. to find you on Twitter. Yeah. You yeah. must be one of the only journalists I know. I know. I know. So. Well, it's not harming you. Obviously. Well, I just, I just think that it's a great time waster. You know, if they spent less time doing that and more time honing skills, the sorts of skills that I think will stand them in much better stead, like reading, for example, um, you know, books about investigative journalism, reading. Mm. Um, even, you know, if, they, if they're interested in crime and in solving or trying to investigate cold cases, here's something that's a little bit, you know, left field. But, you know, I'm a huge fan of Michael Connolly, the crime writer, former Los Angeles Times crime writer, now amazingly successful US novelist. And, um, and you know, his, his books, uh, most of them, revolve around a, a, a homicide detective in LA called Harry Bosch and and Michael Connolly weaves amazing stories about how Harry Bosch tackles cold cases, tackles really serious crimes, murders mostly and uh, multiple murders and I, I just think that the methods that he writes about um, 
and and Harry Harry Bosch's um, you know determination to sort of you know, solve these crimes, yeah, that could be of that could be of, of um, benefit to budding journos if they want to go down that path, you know, because it 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 is fascinating and it does give you ideas and it does help you kind of develop a bit of a discipline in terms of how you interview people and what to ask and and how to approach things and how to see you know the the underbelly of of an issue where you know you're really being encouraged to just see the silver lining and and so i i think that you know there's there are so many different ways young journalists could be becoming better educated and you know better reporters but they're not going to find out through often narcissistic mm. hateful toxic channels that that go with uh, twitter mm, without that distraction and it's, it's distraction. also bad for their mental health like if yeah. they become high profile it seems to me that all they do is attract haters mm. and people who who just want to tweet abuse at them so what's the point of it like strangers tweeting anger and hate and abuse at each other you know in this in this little echo chamber that that the overwhelming majority of Australians don't give a fig about. Like, why are we doing it? Why are journalists so enamoured of it? I don't get it. I... Well, and I think just to finish, Headley, it would be good to speak about a little bit further regarding the, the time we're in with, with raids and security mm. laws at the moment. Mm. Do you see this as a worrying development? I mean, you've been in this game for a long time. Yeah, I do. I think that the uh, raids... Uh, that uh, have taken place uh, were significantly motivated. And this is my personal view. I, mm. I, I don't have access to the evidence. Mm-hmm. And the, I doubt, doubt we'll ever know what was disclosed behind closed doors between senior officials and the police and the government before they launched these, these, this campaign. But, but my view is that it was significantly about intimidating would-be whistleblowers who will be seeing the very public spectacle of police going in en masse to the offices of the, um, the national public broadcaster and into the home of one of my colleagues at News Corp. And the coverage of that, you know, has a chilling effect on people who know that bad things are happening or being covered up that need to be highlighted in the media, why would they be confident to exercise their, their moral judgment and, and do what they would believe to be a necessary thing, albeit under public service rules, possibly an unlawful thing, and leaking. They would be terrified by this. And that is the, I believe, major motive of much of the um, action taken by the police in, in the last couple of weeks. I believe that we'll hopefully learn and confirm that this was not really anything or very little to do with solving you know the alleged crime 
this was this was like the best advertising money can buy and they didn't have to spend anything except the money that they that, that goes into the operation you know the the media plastered this uh, this event and continues to across news and 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 tv and and uh, websites i mean it has had very significant coverage now that is for the minister and for um, senior department officials a blessing if they are determined to intimidate public servants into keeping their mouths shut about things those public servants believe are dodgy and so in that regard you know if this is right if if my premise is right it's an appalling abuse of taxpayer funded resources designed to to subvert reasonable efforts that are often under the unique circumstances justified notwithstanding public service rules that uh, are designed to discourage leaking and you know I am not suggesting that you know there should be carte blanche um, leaking by public servants particularly of Mm. national security secrets I mean my father served in the Royal Australian Air Force um, for many years and you know I believe that a strong defence strong military is vitally important to Australia um, my views on that you know are pretty conservative and, and I would hate to see um, the, the sons and daughters who serve in, in defence and their safety compromised because of leaks by public servants but there will be inevitably very different kinds of leaks often involving national security which which are important for us to know which don't put in harm's way um, um, civilians or uh, defense personnel and and which our politicians don't want us to know even though we are paying for them and we are paying for the the the, the, uh, the departments that they control and that's the bit that's really troubling. Dara I, I, I don't know if you thought this too, Hedley, but being a Queensland uh, girl myself as well, it, did, it reminded me a bit of the Joe days to a degree of that feeling that the media was being watched. Well, it was, over the, it was over the top. It, it was, um, I think... A, a very concerning spectacle and the timing just after the election please I mean <laughs> seriously given the length of these cases mm. how that could be um, just coincidence and, 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 and not related to the election no I'm sorry I don't buy that so what do we do in response Headley, do we? Is it about increasing the understanding that people have of journalism, that the value of the fourth estate in our democracy? I don't know. I've always felt that journalists are perhaps our own worst PR people to a degree. We're quite humble in that sense. Yeah. Look, I think that what we're doing is appropriate in, in um, you know, highlighting it, um, debating it, protesting it, condemning it. That's all good. I sometimes think that. You know, we are played off a break by the politicians 
who are almost always in the loop on these sorts of things, you know, mm. having sort of either given these leaks their blessing or so many mm. politicians are themselves often necessarily for their own political survival and, and their climb up the greasy pole. They are world-class leakers. Mm. They know how to utilise leaking to their own or their party's advantage. And they do it. Mm. And, and, and that's OK because we don't give them up as journalists. We don't, you know, reveal who they are. But should they be able to play both sides? <laughs> Do they think that they've got the right to target journalists over, over those journalists' confidential sources and target those journalists in a way where their sources will be revealed, but it'll never come back to bite the politicians themselves who are sources? So I just think sometimes it would be really good if if we could say to the politicians who are refusing to enact laws that give journalists source protection if we could say to them look have you turned your mind to whether you should um, enjoy all of the protections you've always had as a confidential source given that you think that it kind of doesn't really need to apply to other people and you know <laughs> i don't want for a minute <laughs> you to think i'm suggesting we go around giving threatening politicians to give them up as sources. I'm not saying mm, that at all. That's, but, that's but not that where is, I'm going. Yeah. But, but I do think that politicians need to be reminded that we protect confidential sources, uh, including politicians, and they should honour the right of journalists to do that. Mm, because that confidentiality is crucial, isn't it, for yeah, it so is. much of the work we do? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Thank you so much, Headley, no for worries. joining us on Streets of Your Town. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for the people who've listened and want to perhaps go into podcasting themselves and have been intrigued by what you've achieved? Uh, just go for it. Trust your instincts and uh, don't worry too much. Don't worry at all about the production side. You don't need to have pristine audio. It doesn't need to be ABC quality. <laughs> you, know, you can use um, a recording device just like the one I'm talking into now. Yes, which was the one you used. I'm so excited. Yeah. The little Zoom. Yeah, the H2N1. Uh, <laughs> I remember my, the first time I used it, I didn't know how to use it. It was quite embarrassing. I was doing an interview in Miles and um, this lovely uh, young mum who, who I was trying to interview in the local library helped me format the SD card because it wasn't working as we started the interview. That's fantastic. Mm. So, yeah, just go for it. Mm. You can go for it. Thanks, Headley. You're welcome. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app, on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time. <laughs>